I really love your podcast title about mindful wealth. And to me, the what sort of mindful wealth captures or encapsulates is a willingness to think about not only what constitutes wealth and to question it, but also to think about upon what uh, does you know my or others' wealth depend upon. Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love, generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well-being? Hello and welcome to the 13th episode of the Mindful Wealth Podcast. We're excited to have Karen Ho as our guest today. She's an American anthropologist who's done a lot of research into the Wall Street culture. Uh, and just to kick us off, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, uh, where you come from, and how you got into this research? Well, thanks for having me. I'm Karen Ho. I'm a social cultural anthropologist, um, and I study the culture of finance and Wall Street, and it's actually their relationship to socioeconomic inequality. Um, for a long time, I've actually conducted field work with investment banks, uh, well, with investment bankers and investment banks uh, to sort of understand the, their larger influence in the larger social economy. Also, I teach at the University of Minnesota. <laughs> Thank you, Karen. Um, so maybe you could just start off by telling us um, in your book, Liquidated, you argue that Wall Street culture is a driver for the negative aspects of the current moment of investor capitalism. I wonder if you could unpack that for us a little bit. So for the past 40 years, uh, you know, Wall Street um, ideas, values, etc., have really shaped and catalyzed um, a focus on short-term shareholder value. And short-term shareholder value has actually been directly linked to um, the corresponding disinvestment and deferral and uh, redistribution right, uh, of investment from or to uh, stakeholders, other stakeholders, such as employees, communities, etc. So the, the corresponding focus on short-term shareholder value has actually led to the corresponding disinvestment um, in especially um, you know, other stakeholders, especially employees and employment. So for example, long-term stable jobs. Uh, many of the sort of profits and accumulation that used to cohere to multiple stakeholders uh, really has been drawn into and redistributed upwards, right, to shareholders. So it's not only that larger worldview, um, but also that short-termism that sets the stage for um, increasing inequality, right, and uh, that we sort of see with this particular framing or this particular um, implementation of investor capitalism. And I guess like as a follow-up question, I'm curious that you pull on the uh, cultural aspects of that because it strikes me that it's possible to make kind of like, a, you know, an economic sort of an argument there. Um, so how is it that you kind of put culture, like the culture of Wall Street at the start of that causal chain? That's a great question. So, you know, you're, you're talking to an anthropologist here. And so, you know, my understanding of how um, 
the economy, the larger social economy works, is that it's always already cultural. Uh, that there actually isn't a separation uh, either academically or in the world uh, between economy and society. So, and you know, sometimes it's these historical contrasts that really sort of showcase how um, business culture is culture-laden, right? Or, or that the economic bottom line is culture-laden. So back to the to that to that sort of question about um, investor-driven capitalism. You know, General Electric in the wake of the Great Depression didn't fire a single employee. And that's because it was not because the economy was in good shape, right? The economy was in shambles, but it was culturally unthinkable to actually fire employees. It was a key cultural value. And part of what short-term shareholder value has done is that the value is about um, the sort of larger narrative and the larger worldview that it's to shareholders um, that the corporation is for. And that is not, that is a cultural decision, right? There's nothing in a corporate charter that says everything about an institution has to go towards the shareholders, right? The, and it's also a, a historical narrative. So in the mid 20th century, that was not the sort of dominant ideology. That was not the dominant business value. So therefore we didn't, you know, fire everybody at any chance we got. Um, so the idea that uh, the profits all cohere to the shareholders is itself um, a cultural value. I want to I want to pull on something a little different here, and that's so I think there was something that occurred mm, late seventies, early eighties, where we got really worried about inflation and the price of goods. Um, and 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 when we got really worried about inflation and the price of goods, you know that entered globalization, deregulation. How do we make it so that the end user, the um, the consumer in the American economy? has that benefit. So I, I, d I definitely see what you're saying about the benefits accruing to the investing class, but isn't there also a corollary benefit that goes to the consumer? And I think that if you listen to uh, Harvard economist, Don Boudreau, as an example, uh, you know he would say, no, 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 it's been really, really positive, this thing that happened. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that just for a second. Yeah, wow, that's a great question. So, you know, the, um, you know, Consumers are oftentimes sort of, uh, sort of, you know, the uh, the 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 tug of war here, right? Yeah. To sort of showcase, wow, uh, you can sort of order Amazon Prime and things will be at your doorstep in two seconds. Um, and uh, the the sort of point that sort of I want to make here is that it's it's not uh, necessarily either one way or the other. Mm. Um, and that globalization and uh, particular kinds of deregulations, rebuild regulations are also cultural decisions, right? These are not sort of inevitable processes that just happen to us, but rather, um, and this, you know, goes back to the, um, you know, to, to shareholding, is that if we, we're actually regulating today for financial markets, right? So we have deregulation, but also regulation for particular uh, policies to happen. Um, and so the, you know, the sort of offshoots for consumption, um, we could say that, yes, the many consumers, especially if you're well-resourced, have many choices. On the other hand, um, the kind of short-termism has actually, and, you know, multiple consumer choices, even though, of course, that's also contested because there's also monopolies, right? So we might say we're 50 different companies, but we're all still, you know, um, you know, the same, you know, gap, gap and co or whatever it is. Um, but that kind of short termism in terms of 
products actually often undermines long-term productivity. So, you know, one of the sort of um, one of the sort of favorite quotations I like to give in terms of uh, Harvard Business School professors is Clayton Christensen, right? So he actually writes, um, you know, a few years ago in the Harvard Business Review about the capitalist dilemma mm-hmm. and about how short-term driven investor capitalism actually is bad for capitalists, right? It's actually bad for capital, well, I shouldn't say it's bad for capitalists, but it's bad for capitalism because the short-termism actually undermines the long-term productivity and investment we actually need for market-driving innovations. Um, And so to sort of use a sports analogy, even though I'm not um, an athlete, um, what short-term shareholder value has done, I think, to to larger um, corporations and institutions is that we are forcing or catalyzing or shaping institutions to constantly run sprints right constantly run sprints extract short-term shareholder value get the latest spike and that means the corporation never finishes the marathon right so one could argue that yes you might have all these sort of consumer products that show up um, but in the end right if the corporation is undermined it actually might not be great for consumers um, not only in terms of the sort of end user but also in terms of actually uh, having living wage positions or jobs so do you think that that has happened given the fact that i mean and i realize that the last 10 years is short but if you look at the last 100 years it seems like productivity is up it seems like you know corporate us has been incredibly successful and maybe that's because they've run a a series of sprints and been successful in each of the sprints and right now we're tiring out but it seems like it's worked on on the on the total big picture aggregate wealth creation level while it's also at the same time created inequality that is unsustainable theoretically. Yeah, so, you know, I, I think that, you know, sort of the overall wealth creation, um, you know, and, and certainly if we sort of put inequality into that picture, right, uh, overall wealth creation sort of takes a different tone when we certainly take into account inequality, but also planetary instability. Mm-hmm. Right? So, you know, when we count GDP, for example, or larger wealth accumulation, we're not necessarily always taking into account the fact that they're probably going to be, you know, uh, X times more fires, right, in California than there are today. Um, the fact that there are, you know, upwards of 70 million people displaced, right, because of conflict, climate change, right, that comes out of, um, one could argue, um, a kind of um, uh economic mindset, right, that doesn't take into account, right, the sort of long durée, um, you know, co- attendant consequences of, of accumulation, right? So, yeah. So if I if I just kind of like reframe this a little bit, I know that this is a criticism that often gets leveled against like uh, our political processes with elections every every four or five years, depending, right? Which is that a certain government has a very short time to appeal to voters, and then they have a very short time to enact their policies. And two years into their mandate, they're immediately pitching for the next election. And so might we like kind of draw sort of a parallel there where it's as if this acceleration of shareholder interest forces like one to always be pitching to the next election kind of thing economically? Yeah, no, I think that's a great analogy. Um, Also, when corporations are understood and implemented and practiced as if they were mainly a stock price, 
right? Or mainly a holding in a portfolio, which needs to change over, right? The holding a portfolio timeframe um, is pretty short in sort of the long durée, you know, uh, context. And so if one is always putting corporations themselves up for sale, right, whether for a private equity portfolio or what, whether for a larger, um, you know, fund uh, management, you know, turnover, etc. Then the kinds of decisions that get made are going to be shaped by that short termism. Mm -hmm. So you're sort of, uh, in a sense, designing for the latest economic fashion, right, and oftentimes playing hot potato, as opposed to thinking about what can we build or what can we invest in and what are the sort of long term uh, people and planetary uh, consequences that can come out of that. Um, so commoditizing the entirety of a corporation, right, in a sense, um, that's what sort of uh, short term shareholder value does, right, it sets a stage for that. And, you know, private equity is an example of that. Commoditizing the entire corporation has the consequence of turning all of these stakeholders that are beholden to the corporation, um, you know, uh, and, and reducing those claims really to zero, right, in the service of constantly selling corporations where in the sell, um, it's only their price that is germane, that's, that's measured and that's important. Is that, I mean, I, I know that that's like, a, that's the key factor in an analysis, but I, I think that there's more and more, especially with millennials starting to invest, that there's more and more conversation around you know, what does this company do? How do they do it? How do they treat their employees? How do they treat the earth? I mean, there's way more of that. And I think it's always been there, but it's been muted. And now it's like center stage. Maybe that's current political environment, but um, it, it, it strikes me as a privilege that we have, that we can have the conversation and that the conversation becomes so awesome. Because if we were in Haiti, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation. This conversation would not, you know, inequality is a thing, but it's nowhere near the thing there. It's a huge thing here. And so we have this conversation. Does that make sense? It does. And I like the fact that you bring up the investor democracy, because I do think um, that, you know, folks, now that we do have a, um, a sort of investor privilege, uh, uh, you know, capitalist economy, right, that um, investors then actually have a greater voice, right? And now, one could argue that um, individual investors actually have sort of, you know, um, a less powerful voice because most of the uh, voice is about ins is institutional investors, right? So how do we sort of lay shape to that? Um, but to the extent that investors today really want to use their influence to, to actually have multiple values in there that uh, corporations need to be attendant to. So in a sense, we can't take for granted what a shareholder's values are, right? And that's actually a good thing. If we can actually think about, well, what if values are about the larger, are about inequality or the environment um, or sustainability? That then, so, you know, let's not sort of put a priori what a shareholder value is, right? We can shape that from um, an investor standpoint. Um, at the same time, uh, that sort of short termism where one sort of extracts the, the greatest sort of price share um, is does continue to be sort of a, a big factor here um you know not to mention the fact that you know uh, the sort of the job precarity that oftentimes comes out of this is really something to be concerned about right so you know one of my colleagues actually does research on um old uh auto company pension fund discussions 
right? And the, the, the labor unions are actually at Ford Motor Company, et cetera, are actually having discussions saying, gosh, you know, if, if um, we do this with the pension fund, this actually could undermine actually some of the worker stability but our stock price could go up, our portfolios could go up, right? So they actually recognize some of that tension there about, you know, where do other stakeholders such as employees fit in and how can we actually attenuate or reshape this larger conversation so that they're not actually pit against one another in terms of a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, like, if we can just sort of, you know, go back to the comment that, that Jonathan made about, um, you know, the consumer, right? Because I think the fact is, like, that the consumer is also a worker. And so I think that's kind of the the, the, the tension there, because on the one hand, like, the, the I guess the paradox that we see is, okay, so there's now, I mean, here in, in Canada, we call it Dollarama, but there's like the dollar store, right? Where like everybody can buy a bunch of cheap stuff and like, I remember when you used to have to pay $15 for a pot or a spatula, but now you can get it for a dollar, right? So on the one hand, there's like a consumer buying power that's gone up. But on the other hand, in the, in a wage reality, people's lives have sort of gotten more precarious and like less financially stable. That's correct. So wages have uh, really sort of stayed stagnant uh, over the past 40 to 50 years, right? So um, in terms of, you know, the sort of, you know, larger aggregate measures. So that's actually something really, um, you know, problematic that we have uh, wages uh, really sort of declining or staying stable. Um, and, you know, the and certainly how institutions are no longer um, you know, have in their purview, right, jobs and employment, right? So jobs and employment actually used to be a key part of corporate governance, right? But if, if corporations are understood mainly to be beholden to shareholders, then jobs and employment are actually outside of that larger understanding of what a corporation is for. So corporations are not in the business of providing long-term stable jobs and benefits, right? So we, we do have an erosion of what we have sort of have formerly called middle-class and working-class jobs. So, um, and, and and to take a quick tangent to this, I know we're gonna get to this in a little bit, um, you know, it's also important to sort of understand historically that many of these, you know, good jobs, right? These corporate ladder jobs, which are now being dismantled or increasingly being dismantled, um, were also previously, um, you know, excluded, right, um, from many uh, people of color and women, right? So we sort of have this sort of moment of, okay, well, many middle-class folks are now experiencing decline, right? And much of the larger social political discourse is turned towards scapegoating, right? And yet misrecognizing that larger history where many marginalized folks were never incorporated into the ladder in the first place to now experience that decline. Right. So there, there's there's all kinds of, um, you know, uh, larger context imaginations here in terms of work and consumers and um, and larger social economic decline. But let me just kind of uh, throw something else in there. I mean, what do you make of, of, of globalization in this? Because I think it's one thing to have a, you know, a domestic policy discussion where, you know, one talks about there is within, like, let's say the, 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 the closed sphere that is the United States or, you know, I'm, I'm in Canada, so that this closed sphere that is the Canadian labor market, right? And then the fact that at a certain point, labor markets got deregulated in the sense that we allowed, like, 
you know, jobs to be offshored. So that in there's been a negative consequence, let's say, in the Canadian or the American middle class job sector. But if you look at that on a world scale, I wonder what happens when in, you know, India or China or Indonesia or Pakistan, um, there are living wage jobs that are being created there to the detriment of the American middle class. I wonder if you think that's a, a kind of a worthwhile avenue to interpret this with. Um, you know, I mean, the, I think the sort of larger conversation with globalization now is so fraught, right, in terms of, you know, it oftentimes becomes sort of rendered as um, a inevitable process, right, where folks are sort of pit against each other. Um, and I do think that uh, many of the sort of um, uh, advances and processes that you're talking about, right, we cannot limit it to um, these sort of, you know, I guess sort of constructed national boundaries. Um, at the same time, who's pit against whom and why I think we'll have to sort of, you know, sort of deserves more unpacking. Um, and, and just to give sort of, you know, one example of this um, is that, you know, they're uh, actually uh, quite interesting in terms of, you know, an example from India with Tata Motors, right? So Tata Motors, for example, used to, um, and this is actually quite, has a lot of parallels with the U.S., actually used to really focus on long durée middle class positions. And part of Tata Motors' move in the past 20 years or so to shareholder value has itself rendered a lot of the formerly really stable middle class jobs in India much more precarious, right? So how these larger institutions influence one another is a key part of the story um, that can be just as important as, you know, what's happening with sort of work, et cetera. Um, so, you know, uh, but again, I think these are, uh, you know, very particular cultural decisions that are made and not so. So so one other thing here that you're, you're that your really great question just sort of got me to think about is the idea about outsourcing is also about ratios, right? Part of a short-term shareholder-driven mindset is that you want to harbor um, or you want to sort of glean the most profits out of the least assets on your balance sheet. And one way to get the least assets on the balance sheet, right? And again, this is sort of looking at the balance sheet from a short-term shareholder value position, which is which is now hopefully contested, right? Um, from Harvard Business School professors on, you know, upwards or downwards. Um, but if we want to glean the most profits on the least assets, then one of the things that many business uh, managers are driven to do is to outsource, right? So they don't harbor those assets if they're outsourcing it to other places. So part of making their ratio look better is that cultural decision to outsource jobs. So, so it's not just a question of globalization, but also what are the sort of parameters through which we're making decisions about what looks good on our balance sheets? So the, I, we're going off script here and I love it. Um, so, and this is good, but I, but I want to go off script a little further. So I, I have this, I have a, I have this theory that I've been, I've just, sort of bantered about, talk with friends about, you know, it's sort of inside uh, baseball kind of conversation. And, the, and it, it's, you, you can't marry capital. I mean, it, underlying everything that we're talking about is, is capital, whether we like it or not, unless you're Cuba or China or North Korea, you know, it's probably some other examples. Capital can go wherever capital wants to go. So 
So we generally have to attract capital. And if we, and capital is picky, and capital wants a return on its investment. Um, and we can be, you know, the democratic investors can choose, hey, sustainability is important. Um, uh, same-sex partner rights is important. We can actually talk about these things as social things, but, but capital decides where it's gonna go. And that's how do we manage that without losing the attraction that the U.S. has for capital? So, you know, I mean, okay, so uh, attractive capital notwithstanding. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and part of sort of, I, I, I think the sort of role of an anthropologist is to render concrete, right, and render specific um, some of our claims, in, in, including, you know, uh, including our own. And, you know, I often like to go back to one really sort of pivotal example that um, sort of I learned from uh, conducting fieldwork um, amongst, with and amongst Wall Street investment bankers. And that's when a group of uh, investment bankers um, were actually talking to me about a deal that they were currently on. And at the time, the deal was the fanciest mergers and acquisitions, um, you know, uh, in the world uh, almost. And that was the M&A um, between Time Warner and AOL. Yep. And many of the bankers who talked to me said, oh, my God, this deal sucks. Yeah, it's a disaster to begin with. <laughs> exactly. But... You know, not only is our institution, um, you know, really going to um, uh, exact sort of windfall fees from this, right, on the order of 40 to 50 million dollars, um, but that we actually need to push this through into the market because it's going to crash. Right. And again, this was happening around, you know, 2001. So the idea that, yes, capital is attracted to this, but they also know that the AOL Time Warner merger um, is a terrible deal that does not have long-term sustainability, right? So we could sort of say, yes, capital was attracted to that, um, but that doesn't make it a good decision for the world, but, but also um, for us in the long run, right? It was not necessarily attractive for AOL Time Warner and most employees. It wasn't necessarily attractive for them as institutions. Um, so I think it's really important to to render specific the measure that we use for, um, you know, for for capital's decisions. No, absolutely. I mean, I told I totally agree that capital is stupid as hell, right? No question. But 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 it chooses, and and we have to. And I, I use this word. In, this is intentionally. We have to. It's like bow to it a little bit in order to not be Haiti, to not be a third world country like and i think that's that's an interesting conundrum we face ourselves we 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 face as a culture we want to actually be more equal we want to but we also want to attract capital and so how do we i think this is kind of what you're talking about is how do we have it both ways right right well well i think capital would have been much better used right um it, and but you know i, I think that it, to to sort of make it just an issue of attraction right um you know, as opposed to there are particular, um, you know, policies, there are particular regulations, there are particular worldviews and values that have to be in place for capital to be attracted and, and mobilized um, in this manner, right? We could attract and mobilize capital in other ways. So to so we, we don't want to sort of let the drive and the sort of, you know, attraction of capital um, sort of render invisible right, the larger policies or the alternatives um, that could happen uh, with with large amounts of money. 
Yeah, and I mean, I think if we kind of like move this back to the the sphere of anthropology, and like I feel like what you know I really enjoyed about like reading your work, Karen, is just this fact of um, maybe bringing like some of these economic decisions where we talk about capital or we talk about the market and the market decides or capital decides. Well, ultimately, when we abstract those things from the humans who are pushing on the button behind them, we risk making it seem like a state of nature as opposed to it being a state of culture. And so I wonder if you could just like, you know, explain that to us a little bit more deeply, because I feel like that was like one of the really, you know, cool things that I found about about liquidated is that it really made me think, well, yeah, I mean, we are always us who are in you know the financial sphere. We end up talking about the market as if it's like the weather. Right. But ultimately, like there are rules that govern the market. Those are cultural and political. And then there are attitudes that govern people's behaviors within the market. And that's cultural. So. That's right. That's right. That that was so well stated um, that I, I couldn't have stated it better myself. Um, so you know, th the idea that that markets are always already cultural and social um, that's something that uh, certainly imbues um, you know my training and how I think about and approach markets and economy. Um, but specifically, financial markets are often framed as um, the sort of penultimate kind or type of market, right, that is oftentimes also framed as acultural, right? What goes up must come down, autonomous, naturalized, etc. So really thinking about the particularity and unpacking the individuals, institutions, how folks actually get socialized into this world or set of worlds and values, and then empowered to do what they do was a key part of what I wanted to understand. Because shareholder, uh, short-term shareholder value was not something that, you know, had always happened, right? Institutions were much more long-term. Folks didn't necessarily care that the stock price sort of rose every quarter, right? This was not a dominant frame of thinking. Today, we think, oh, of course, it was always already like this, right? But these are historically contingent. Um, and so part of what I want to do with finance was unpack it um, from a social and cultural perspective. And so when I researched Wall Street uh, investment bankers, one of the things I began to notice was the short-termism in their own employment. So um, it, the, the sort of revolving door that sort of we always talk about, that folks at Morgan Stanley would end up at Merrill Lynch, that uh, parts of this particular industry would be poached from Goldman Sachs and gone to Credit Suisse, um, that uh, uh, DLJ would actually be incorporated into this institution, that sort of Citigroup formed, right? So that for bankers, there was always an expiration date to their jobs. And this really hit home in that previous example with AT and, or sorry, uh, with uh, AOL and Time Warner in that many, in many ways, the deal was pushed through, right? Because many of these bankers really didn't think that they would be at their uh, institution two to five years from now, right? So in many ways, it was get what you can out of it now. Right. Uh, and because the deal that you make today is going to affect your yearly bonus. Yep. And so if you can actually push the deal, deal through whether or not it's of quality, right, it's the quantity of deals, not the quality that affects your bonus. And so it was sort of seeing the ways in which the short termism and the pushing through of deals and the transaction oriented mindset wasn't just, oh, it's just the market. 
but rather shaped by the larger institutional culture of Wall Street short-term employment, the constant revolving door, the fact that bonuses are based on um, quantity of deals and not its quality, or how well institutions do five to 10 years from now. So in a sense, by pushing through as many deals as possible, um, using the sort of moniker IBG, YBG, right? I'll be gone, you'll be gone right, as a way to sort of extract, um, in a sense, the sort of most for that financial deal making, um, because they knew that they wouldn't be there for that long, and they knew that their bonus depended on how many deals they made, was really a recipe for the production of social, economic, and financial crises. So the crisis wasn't just a what goes up must come down, but rather embedded um, and shaped through what was happening at an everyday level in terms of Wall Street institutional culture, um, um, and mindset. Wow. So you, you, the, the whole, the beginning of that, I don't know if you know this or if you, if you've checked us out at all, but, uh, my first five years, I was at seven different wall street firms, my first five, five years in the industry. So, uh, fully aware of what that's like, uh, and, and didn't find stability until I started my own company. Uh, and, and I'm so happy I did never, never backed away from that one. That's been great. Um, but, but, um, the, the idea of the next deal driving the next payday, protecting me from the from the insecurity of my losing my my job or the company going under or what have you, it's it's all very um, selfish. So I, I I'm wondering because you also write about the separation between Wall Street, the elitist culture, and the rest. That separation has to have you know I'm going to take care of me and mine, you know beggar than neighbor. I, I don't really care what happens to you and yours. Can you can you speak to that a little bit? Um, wow, that's a that's a I'm glad you brought up your background and the really sort of really important, um, you know, context for this. So that that's it. That's it. Let me let me ponder that. That's a really key point. Um, and what I'd like to sort of say about that in terms of um, how Wall Street financiers and bankers are socialized. Right, I think that's really important because you know part of an anthropologist is um, uh, per, you know uh, purview or, or or job description, so to speak. Am right? I under a microphone? Am I? Under, are you looking at me under a microscope now? Like I'm 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 a little <laughs> nervous about where we're going. <laughs> that's it. She's going to start do her use her anthropology on you. Yeah, correct. <laughs> My anthropology mojo. Uh, well, part of an anthropologist's sort of toolkit is to understand the native's point of view. Okay. And, and and yes, we might sort of end up um, uh, you know, analyzing it, uh, perhaps even critiquing it. But the first is not to sort of cast judgment without understanding how folks are socialized into these broader processes, institutions, etc. And so, in terms of Wall Street investment bankers being selfish, um, it, it, it's not like I don't agree with that. Um, but but part of the um, what I'd like to sort of um, you know, pick with is the way in which that becomes in is shaped through a larger socialization process. So, for example, um, even though Wall Street uh, bankers and financiers are quite unstable in terms of their position, they're also the most highly compensated job category, right? Um, you know, in the U.S. and probably in the world. 
And this high compensation job category often leads to, or is often sort of based on their bonuses, which are, you know, one could argue sort of windfall profits that are um, part of these deal making, um, you know, and transaction sort of oriented mindset that they sort of help to push through. But part of this, um, their high compensation is it oftentimes renders them and, sh and renders them and sort of shapes them in ways that they actually understand their precarity, right? Not in the ways that the average American worker does, right? Because even though Wall Street investment bankers are sort of notoriously uh, precarious and have insecure jobs, they're also highly compensated. And so they often come to see job insecurity as forging uh, one might call men of metal, right? Because they often land on their feet they're oftentimes well compensated. They're oftentimes um, whisked off to a new position at a different investment bank. They're oftentimes highly sought after in a regular non-financial corporation because financial expertise is sought after because finance is a dominant and predominant value, right? So we need that expertise. And so because of their experience of precarity, but also privilege and landing on their feet and also being highly compensated, I would argue that it actually renders them less able and less empathetic to understand the plight of the average worker, right? Because their experience of precarity is so mixed with the privilege, right? And their context is so different that should they use their own experience of precarity to judge um, the, the experiences of others, right? Um, they might not always understand um, partly because they're sort of socialized into, you know, a master of the universe mindset, um, might not always understand the sort of mix of privilege and precarity that shapes their world and their experience of precarity. Wow, that is so important. Yeah. yeah. And it, it really resonates like, so I come from like a real estate background and the tension that we're always dealing with is, um, you know, landlords and tenants, right? And it's not a direct fit as far as that model goes, but like it really makes sense because let's say, the landlord's experience of how you use capital and paying your bills and paying your mortgage is one thing. And then the tenants with like, you know, me making their rent payments, there's not the same like level of precarity and, and taking responsibility. And if, if your choice is, okay, either I have to pay my phone bill or I have to pay my rent, like I'm just choosing which bill I don't pay. Whereas for, you know, the, the landlord, it's well, okay, you know, I, you will find a way to pay your mortgage because it's very rare that people, at least in Canada, it's very rare that people default on their mortgages. So, yeah. Um, but let me, let me get into sort of more like solution mode here. So I think like we, obviously we really loved your critique. That's why we uh, wanted to have you on the show. <laughs> and I think that already like a critique is part of the solution because it brings into our awareness something of which we might not be aware. But if we turn this into like a more kind of proactive discussion, do you have any ideas about the levers we could pull on to start changing some of this stuff? Like if you had a magic wand, what would you like to see happen to, to fix some of this? Wow, you asked the toughest questions. <laughs> so, so, so I'll, I'll, I'll delay for a, a few seconds by approaching it this way. <laughs> and, and the sort of strategic delay is that actually in 2008, um, there we had um, a little bit of an opportunity as well as a, a majorly unfortunate sort of set of cataclysmic events, right? So in 2008, 
um, you know, Wall Street helped to catalyze, and 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 one uh, could argue without sort of much pushback um, uh, that Wall Street institutions really did uh, push the economy off a cliff. Uh, even though they were also then called upon to help save it. But anyway, that's the uh, dis dis decision for another matter. Um, and in that moment, right, we really sort of faced a huge conundrum that I'm not sure I could necessarily, that I wouldn't have been able to solve, right? So I'm, I'm sort of putting that out there. It's not like I knew uh, the sort of, you know, uh, this is exactly where we should go with this. Um, but part of the social safety net especially in the U.S., being for so long outsourced to the financial markets, right? So everything from teachers' pension funds to uh, larger savings, mutual funds, right? People's uh, upper middle class Americans, Charles Schwab accounts, retirement accounts, being outsourced to Wall Street um, as opposed to pensions that were not as exposed to markets. Is that... Um, that really, in a sense, empowered Wall Street to really command and demand a bailout. And so this bailout was, re uh, was in a sense, enacted whole cloth, right? Trillions of dollars in terms of everything from um, the sort of Fed and uh, the Treasury sort of shoring up, right, uh, many of these institutions and the securities markets to, um, you know, uh, wholesale subsidy. And I think part of the opportunity that was missed here was an opportunity to reshape some of the um, really sort of short-term reasons and incentives that led to this financial crisis in the first place. Um, and in part, right, it was a catch-22 because bailing out Wall Street also meant bailing out um, middle-class and upper-middle-class Americans' retirements. Right. So there was no sort of other source of stable retirement funds that was not tied to the markets. Right. This has been in the works over the past 30 or 40 years where Wall Street was really empowered um, to be the advisors to all of these funds. Right. Which shaped their sort of growing influence, et cetera, et cetera. The other thing that we um, didn't do that could still be a possibility today is that we didn't um, actually bail out the folks whose homes were foreclosed. And I actually think that that was a big mistake, right? Because inequality has actually skyrocketed since 2008. And um, both for um, those at the bottom as well as for those in the middle. And, and it's precisely for those in the bottom and those in the middle that were oftentimes becoming homeowners for the first time in 2008. And, actually bailing out Wall Street for all of its mistakes and um, I would argue a top-down pushing of subprime uh, products, right? Um, by 2007, most of the people who are sold a subprime mortgage would have qualified for prime. And I think that's a really sort of telling that, that, that there was a larger push here to sell more subprime even though um, the, you know, um, the homeowners uh, would have qualified for prime. So the fact that the homeowners weren't bailed out, I think was a sort of a really big misstep, right? It could have been sort of a homeowner's GI bill that could have shored up some of that uh, accumulated wealth that had been built over the course of the past 30 or 40 years that really disappeared. And so, you know, if we sort of look at this larger socioeconomic landscape today, what are some key investments that we can do to shore this up 
Um, and um, even though I, I sort of answered your question with, oh gosh, we missed the boat again. <laughs> We, we we missed the boat with a GI Bill after World War II, right? When we actually um, had uh, jobs in higher education and mortgages for um, uh, folks who were sort of fighting for us in World War II. But then we happened to exclude, uh, you know, most people of color and women. And so that accumulated wealth that created the American middle class in the, in the mid 20th century never happened, right? Uh, to most folks, but to a, to a particular category, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so I feel like with uh, 2008, we saw a place where we sort of lacked the um, political and economic courage, I think, to bail out the homeowners, which I think would have really um, reshaped some of the terms of the debate and the sort of political fraughtness of today. Right. I think many of the sort of rise of reactionariness and alternative facts and um, I'm experiencing so much decline, I can't see straight and what's real and what's not and what's truth. Um, a lot of this real, we can, we can sort of trace some of these um, underpinnings to social economic decline and precarity in the wake of 2008. And that, that actually just got worse in the pandemic. I mean, we, we went into another a brand new gear of precarity in the pandemic. Um, and I think that, well, tell, you, you should tell us, uh, the, was the response there a better one? Jonathan, now, so now we actually have, right, we missed the boat in 2008. We're sort of missed. Okay, well, so in the pandemic, so there are some things that we're actually doing not terribly in, and there are many things that we, where we've reproduced the problem. So uh, when the pandemic first started, uh, uh, early 2020, um, the stock market tanked. Mm -hmm. And not surprisingly, the lessons that the financial markets learned from 2008 is that they would be bailed out. And so sure enough, the Fed and the Federal uh, and the Treasury kicked in in terms of shoring up the securities markets again, right, um, on the order of billions of dollars, et cetera, et cetera. So trillions, trillions, exactly trillions. So so the so the, 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 the there's an understanding there right, of a competence that's actually not about necessarily free markets, but a confidence actually made possible through subsidy. So, you know, the, the stock market skyrocketing is because of investment, right? And governmental investment, uh, not because of, you know, the, the, the brilliance of, of a trader or anything like that, or, or the sort of underlying um, institutions doing that well. So, but in, in terms of uh, what the pandemic laid bare, are the ways in which not only essential workers, but reproductive and care labor um, is devalued. And so reproductive and care labor being devalued, again, you know, as we talked about, that's a cultural decision. The fact that GDP does not take into account reproductive and care labor is something that many historians and economists actually back in the day debated. Maybe we should take into account household labor. Maybe that would be a better measure of GDP, right? Um, but sort of um, dominant ideologies and simplified models actually sort of won the day, right? As opposed to sort of thinking about a more nuanced frame. But but what the pandemic really laid bare was that if we actually don't um, continue to devalue reproductive and care labor, then uh, the house of cards really falls down. Um, and that we could sort of no longer, um, in a sense, pretend that 
oh gosh, some elves are doing the reproductive and care labor for us, <laughs> right? That we sort of understood that that um, for the most part, um, women, many people of color, uh, essential workers, et cetera, really bore the burden of this reproductive and care labor upon which the economy was sort of um, uh, was dependent upon. So part of that um, laid bareness and recognition um, really sort of shored up some of the um, uh, pandemic-led uh, safety net basic income um, reorientations, right, in terms of how do we actually think about um, issues of care and reproductive labor and essential work in ways um, that don't just elide them and depend on them and exploit them, but rather bring them into the picture. It's still highly unequal, but at least there's that recognition um, in terms of the importance of that work. Uh, on a total side note, actually it's not super side, but with, um, you know, people often wonder, oh gosh, you know, why? So, so do you all remember when Goldman Sachs analysts um, uh, early on, or not, you know, maybe midway through the pandemic, um, posted their pitch book, right? And in the pitch book, these Goldman Sachs analysts talked about how much they're, uh, they're working 100 plus hour weeks. They're working for much longer now in the pandemic than they used to be. Um, and they were calling the sort of, um, you know, the senior bankers to task for this. And, you know, I was thinking this is actually a really interesting social economic phenomena because here you have sort of managing directors and senior bankers who, in a sense, are saving a lot of time because they're no longer out traveling, traipsing about um, getting deals. They're getting deals, and so in a sense, they're they're really saving their travel time. Mm -hmm. They also probably have somebody at home helping them with the reproductive and care labor, right? So they actually have a lot of time to make phone calls right, to get on Zoom meetings, to really drum up deals. And many bankers actually have told me that their deal-making pipeline during the sort of by the middle of the pandemic was higher than ever. They're making calls like nobody's business. All of this was falling on the analyst's lap, right? And of course, the analysts didn't have the, um, you know, the plus side of actually hanging out with any other human beings, but rather was at home, right, dealing with all of the sort of, you know, consequences of the phone conversations from managing directors who were stuck at home and had, you know, lots of time to kill. Um, but that's one way to sort of show that this was highly unequal. For folks who had resources, reproductive and care labor, as well as analysts, right, right at their beck and call, they were able to do quite a bit of um, uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, profiteering, right, uh, in ways that uh, uh, many um, other job categories could not. Um, so this, I mean, this is super interesting. We're going to have to start moving to wrap up, but I'm going to be selfish and just kind of like poke at this, you know, reproductive and care labor thing because, so look, I, maybe this is kind of, you know, anecdotal, but one of the things I observed around me is that, you know, like I'm a, my, I have a young son. Uh, a lot of my, my friends have, you know, young kids. And what I observed around me was basically middle-class women kind of got the rug pulled out from under them because we all rely on these kind of pyramids of reproductive, like care labor, basically. But that like, it meant that 
um, you know, the men and the couple, t I'm, I'm stereotyping, but like they tended to be like, oh, well, I haven't noticed that there's a pandemic. Like, oh, you know, ha ha. Whereas like the, you know, the women are like going crazy back to back Zoom meetings, trying to look after the kids, like trying to do grocery shopping when there's like these massive lines. And I don't know, like other than getting knocked back 10 years in their, you know, careers, I don't know that at least in Canada, there's much of a, a conversation about this. I feel like for sure the working conditions of like essential workers and, you know, um, care workers here, there's more of a discussion about that. But I feel like, you know, the, 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 the kind of way in which like a lot of women live the pandemic, I don't feel like they're gonna come out ahead with there being a whole lot more dialogue. I feel like they just had a very bad year and a half and now they're trying to pick themselves up from it, having taken the hit to the career and da 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 da, you know? I think that was brilliantly stated. I, I totally agree. I mean, the, the, the sort of, you know, at least sort of, you know, many job markets, um, I think uh, certainly in the US and um, probably also in Canada, um, and sort of really upwardly mobile jobs have embedded in it the sort of unconscious criteria that uh, this sort of upwardly uh, rising um, employee um, needs a wife, right? So the, the wife part. Or daycare or, da or reliable daycare. Like in Canada, we have cheap, affordable daycare for everyone. And that makes it that we have a female workforce that is able to move ahead in their career. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, so all of this, upon what does this depend, right? That was shaped according to a particular narrow model, right? Um, really has been sort of unearthed. And at the same time, as you're saying, um, it might not be accounted for, right? We might not sort of deal with the sort of multiple layers of hidden and not so hidden infrastructure. Um, the sort of, you know, the and the multiple labors involved, whether it's the second shift, right? Um, the fact that daycare workers and um, teachers and other sort of, you know, uh, folks that reproduce what makes the sort of children, the household, you know, work. Um, all of that is not taking into account when we just think about the sort of normative worker. And so I, I think you're, you're absolutely right on that um, to the extent that women um, and you know, many other sort of essential workers really shoulder the burden of the second shift of reproductive and care labor, um, that their livelihoods and their upward mobility is really gonna be severely affected by um, uh, you know, certainly the pandemic, but also increasing job insecurity. Yeah. Um, one last question, maybe. We didn't really get into it, but, um, you know, a, a lot of this discussion of, let's say, you know, the, the role of wealth and, you know, financializing of things. I think we are socialized in such a way where we um, assume that success is coterminous with wealth and, and financial success. And so if I were to turn the question over to you, um, you know, and maybe how you personally define success or how you think what would be a more, you know, socially responsible definition of success, how would you define true wealth if it's not financial? That's a great question. Um, I think that I, I really love your podcast title about mindful wealth. And to me, the, what sort of mindful wealth captures or encapsulates is a willingness to think about not only what constitutes wealth and to question it, but also to think about upon what uh, does you know, my or others' wealth depend upon. 
right? So it's, it's really thinking relationally, um, not being afraid to think about sort of history and inequality, right? Um, you know, part of the, you know, the piece on the sort of financialization of everything and the financialization of everyday life. Um, on the one hand, I agree that that is something that is really occurring on a mass scale. On the other hand, um, I do want to make sure that we notice the differences, right? So for example, when we talk about um, really investing in living wage jobs, that doesn't mean that jobs or, or labor is not monetized or commoditized, right? It's still financialized at some point, but there are other values that are navigating with those values, that are negotiating it, that are thinking about the larger socioeconomic consequences. Um, the sort of problem, I think, with a particular and singular focus on, again, a particular approach or interpretation of financialization um, is that it's uh, not only extractive, but it's so short term, right? And part of what I think that your podcast is doing in terms of mindful wealth is really thinking about that question about extraction, right? Is to, to what extent, right? Uh, upon what does this wealth depend upon? You know, uh, whether it's in uh, real estate and housing or in the job market or in finance and to really be mindful of it and then um, and to be sort of open, not only to sort of thinking it in sort of new and alternative ways, um, but also to um, think about solutions once one thinks through some of those um, entanglements. I think also one of the hardest things for for many of us is our own complicity. Right. So, you know, part of I, I might, for example, critique uh, short term shareholder value, but at the same time as a university professor. Right. I'm also seeing that my retirement accounts are part and parcel are imbricated with um, uh, and rising right due to a set of practices that focus on rising stock price and those practices I might disagree with to the extent that some of the um, wealth has been redistributed from stable labor right um, or better sustainable arrangements to creating a quick dividend or a quick stock price spike that shows up in my portfolio so i think part of um, thinking about wealth is to think about how we can engage with and, and open up these conversations about complicity um, and also, Jonathan, this is to your point about, okay, well, given that many uh, relatively powerful folks now, right, are investors themselves, how can we reshape that narrative and push back, right, in terms of what is, um, what are shareholder values? And right. let's actually resist a narrow framing of that that really has been dominant over the past, um, you know, 30 to 40 years. I love it, Karen. I think that's I think that's a wrap. I mean, that's an excellent way to end a fantastic conversation. Thanks for being on. Yeah, thank you both.